uh, Jimmy said that apparently I was right by telling everybody to come on a Wednesday night. Uh, we've got uh, a very large crowd on a Wednesday night, uh, not usual. We have over 30 watching online, so we have a pretty good crowd tonight. And so let's open up to Jonah. <laughs> ha! Got ya. <laughs> let's open up to the Song of Solomon. As we work our way through, it'd be an exciting book too. I love Jonah, by the way. I love teaching it. It is exciting. Song of Solomon. Your Bible might also say Song of Songs. Just scanning the room at the ages in the room, okay? We're going to read it together, chapter 1, and then we'll come back and we'll do our intro. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let, me kiss, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, and because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Now draw me away, and we will run after you. And the king has brought me into his chamber, and he will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. For I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar and like the curtains of Solomon. And do not look upon me because I am dark and because the sun has tanned me, for my mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, and where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And if you do not know, O fairest among the women, Follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. For I have compared you, my love, to my little filly. That's a horse. We'll get into what you should say and not say, husbands, later. To my little filly among the Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck uh, with chains of gold. And you will make your ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. And a bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. For my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyard of Engedi. And behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. And you have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. And the beams of our houses are cedars under the rafters of fir. And that's why we have the air conditioning turned down. <laughs> now, Tonight, I'm going to do something a little different, I, uh, how I've taught the book of Song of Solomon, a little bit different. Tonight, we're really not even getting into the book. We're just going to give you an intro, 
And the idea that I wanted to do was how we got to where we are in the church today on this topic of sex and marriage inside of the church and what has happened over the last 1900 years in the church to bring us to the place to which we have now. I was talking to somebody today about this topic and about how in the 1960s, as we will see, was such a huge swing of the pendulum against what we would know as uh, biblical relations or biblical sex inside of marriage. And there was a push against that so much so that the pendulum swung way far on the other side. And now we have what we have. But I pose to you, if the church had been doing its job and promoting this in the correct biblical way, then perhaps we wouldn't have the 60s at all. Right on? Okay, then. <laughs> Let's dive into it again. Pray for me. You only have to sit here. I have to teach it. The rabbis taught that no one under 30 was to read this book because of the steamy content. And so I wanted to give a disclaimer about this book and about its topic. Therefore, this book has been rated for mature audiences only. You will hear terms and definitions that you may not want younger ears to hear. Body parts will be mentioned, desires discussed, but all done in the framework of biblical marriage. And I want to keep emphasizing that as we journey through. This is God's view, okay, of biblical marriage. And we need to remember that, and I'm going to say that over and over and over. Uh, to where the fire is allowed to be kindled is only in one place. And that's what we're going to see. If you're single and you think, this is not for me, maybe I should have, <laughs> maybe I should have taken a couple of weeks off. Ah, take notes, like I said. For this might be very helpful to you in the future as you too will want to become married. And if not, just cheer on the married folk and let's get biblical. That was a wrestling reference. I should have done it in a better voice. Again, please note, I want this to be clear, this is not the biblical Kama Sutra. Everybody got that? Because it involves love between a man and his bride, and as God has established it, it's not a worldly view of that. It is God's view, and because God's stamp of approval, and as we will see, because it is in God's word, therefore, there is nothing wrong with it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, I think sets the foundation for this topic the writer says, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, please note with me, is undefiled, which means what goes on in your marital bed is between you and your spouse. But he continues and he says, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now imagine you running across this maybe in a, uh, a magazine title or on a kind of uh, a YouTube or an Instagram uh, image, maybe you run across this and, and, and you read it like this. Married couples are talking, the best romance story ever. It was inspiring and very steamy. The guy was hot. 
I was shocked and thrilled, and it was so explicit in talking about sex. This book gave me permission to be wild and crazy with my husband on the marital bed. You would believe these couples are talking about the Song of Solomon, right? You wouldn't think that, but that's exactly what they are. Now, you might think, now, wait a minute. Um, isn't that in the Bible? Did he just say sex several times in church? Absolutely. And what about Solomon? Wasn't he the guy that had hundreds of wives? <laughs> Why should we listen to anything he has to say about sex and marriage? And I pose to you, uh, that's a fair question. The guy's got issues. His father had the same issues. Amen. He did not learn from Papa. Again, after all, Solomon accumulated 700 wives and 300 concubines during his lifetime. He's not exactly the role model when it comes to marriage. So what godly insight could he ever offer to married couples? Again, why should we listen to Solomon? Well, first of all, it should be noted that Solomon, again, inherited many of his wives and concubines from his father. That was normal in this day. Others he acquired under political alliances. Also, 1 Kings indicates that he was, it wasn't until later in his life that Solomon accumulated all of his other wives, which again was his downfall. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to God, 1 Kings 11.4. Even so, Solomon seems to lack the proper credentials for giving anyone, let alone Christians, marital advice. So should we trust Solomon? No, we should trust God. And that's the point. You see, Solomon's resume had one positive credential that overshadowed all of his weaknesses as a writer for a book on marital love. You see, God chose Solomon to write the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. What other credential does he need? The one whom God chooses, he also equips. Even if he's a failure, is that not powerful or what? The most failured man with the topic of this is the one that God chooses to use to write this as well as the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, as we've seen. In his youth, the likely time in which the Song of Solomon was written, Solomon was completely devoted to the Lord. In the beginning of his life, he started well. In 1 Kings 3 and uh, 8, chapter 8, a young leader cried out to God, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. God moved Solomon's heart and answered his prayer and gave him, as we saw so many times, wisdom and great insight and breath and understanding as measured as the sand of the seashore. God said that there would never <laughs> be another person as discerning as Solomon. The wisest man of all time wrote the Song of Solomon. Granted, he 
again, is not perfect, but just like his father, who wasn't perfect, he was a man after God's own heart. But our imperfections have never stopped the Almighty from delivering a powerful message through our lives. I think that's a great statement in the life of Solomon. And although the human vessel was flawed, God's message was not. Just as we don't discount the wisdom of Proverbs, because Solomon became foolish later in life, so we do not discount the rich, inspired teaching that permeates this song. Now, before we go too much deeper, I want to address why there are so many problems as we see in our day today with marriage and with sex within the church. And this is due to the improper teaching on the subject which led to over a thousand years of suppression and manipulation. We are sitting here today because of our forefathers in the church failed to do their job. Powerful, isn't it? I want to give you a little bit of history. Uh, And by the way, you're allowed to laugh because if not... I will cry, and I will need more hankies in the air to go down further. I want to give you a little bit of history of how we got to where we got today. I doubt that the church fathers ever called a meeting and declared, hey, let's make our goal to distort the biblical teaching on sex and therefore weaken the mortar of the cornerstone in in marriage. I don't think there was a grand scheme of a cabal of sitting down and figuring out this is what we're going to do. We're going to erode what God's word said. Yet certain events formed a collective mindset on the part of the church and a mindset that viewed sex as indulgence of fleshly pleasures that must be restrained, they said. So let's go back. It started around A.D. 200. Let's see how the church viewed sex in the the day. Now, church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on certain days. Are you ready for it? Uh, You were not allowed to have sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Friday, the day of his death, on Saturday, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, on Sundays, in honor of the departed saints, On Wednesday, sometimes made the list, as well as the 40-day fast periods before Easter's, Christmas and Pentecost, and also the feast days, as well as the days of the apostles. As well as the days of female impurity. The list escalated until only about 44 days a year remained available for marital relations. That's A.D. 200. Thank you for laughing. It gets funnier and better. Now let's fast forward a thousand years, shall we? And let's look at the prevailing mindset. We see a gentle shift from piety to accepted standards. Again, nobody said why are, you, why are you saying what you are saying? Where is that in the Bible? Isn't that our favorite phrase? Man, we've got to put that on a t-shirt. And so they just accepted 
the standards and the behavior and the morals, but didn't say to the church or to the church leaders, why, how have we got to 44 days? Why is that? Because that's not what God says at all. It started in Victorian England. Victorian times were, is where the attitudes characterized by extreme modesty and utter silence on issues related to marital relations. A woman wasn't even supposed to expose a naked ankle. Such behavior was considered brazen and shameful. The attitude so permeated Victorian society that people began covering the legs of furniture. I kid you not, lest they arouse impure thoughts. Again, we laugh at such absurdity being turned on by cable legs. <laughs> but truly, this is not a laughing matter. The seeds of Victorianism was planted so deeply in the minds of the church fathers that it took root in, uh, in further generations to where we are. And let me give you an example of the day seen in a letter from the late 1800s written, I might add, by a pastor's wife to a young woman about her upcoming wedding night. Are you ready? <laughs> Hold on, I'm not. <laughs> to the sensitive young woman, who has had the benefits of proper upbringing. Don't you love how the English talk? The wedding day is, ironically, both the happiest and the most terrifying of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself, and on the negative side, there is the wedding night, during which the bride must, I quote, pay the piper, so to speak. By facing the first time, listen to this pastor's wife, to this young uh, uh, woman about to be buried. Facing the first time the terrible experience of sex. She goes on and she says, at this point, let me concede one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. Ah, she says, but beware of such attitudes. One cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. That is what a pastor's wife wrote to a young woman about to be married in the late 1800s. For centuries, church leaders and lay people have wrongly believed that sex is not to be enjoyed, but rather it is a duty that husbands and wives must perform with restraint and discretion. We can see this attitude in the following quote from Lady Hildegun, a British aristocrat. She said, 
I am happy now that Charles calls on my bedchamber less frequently than of old. As it is now, I now endure but two calls a week, and when I hear his foots outside the door, I lie down on my bed, close my eyes, and I think of England. Even if we've never read about how the church and society viewed sex or yet met a woman who thinks about England so that she can make it through the ordeal of sex with her husband, these distorted views have affected us. Attitudes and beliefs such as these have filtered down through the years, leaving a residue of negative thinking on sex within marriage in our own generation. Again, as I mentioned before, the 20th century spawned a sexual revolution which swung the pendulum, pendulum in the wrong way. And because of the influence of wrong thinking over the centuries about sex within marriage, women were told to just endure it, but not like it or want to be aggressive towards their husband. You see, we don't see that here in the Song of Solomon, as we will see. What we see is a woman who knows what she wants, what she likes, and she encourages her husband to take pleasure in her and vice versa. She becomes what is described as the servant lover. She takes pleasure in bringing both of them together for their sexual encounters. She is not passive, but takes charge to see that they are both fulfilled. Can you imagine what would have happened if this book had been promoted for 1,900 years? Again, she tells women it's okay to like and want sexual relations with your husband, different from what we've seen from the Victorian era or even in A.D. 200. She doesn't wait all the time for him to be the starter, as we will see in the, as the Shulamite says, come to me, my beloved. She tells him what she wants and where to touch her and to hold her. Turn that air down, please. <laughs> she is very specific because she has learned her body and learned how to be the servant lover which again, we will address further in the chapters. Now, I want to say that <laughs> as you came in, you may have seen that in the bookstore. We have stocked the bookstore with marital sex education books as well as an excellent commentary on the Song of Solomon. In fact, I am using that commentary this time through. What's, what's great about that commentary uh, intimacy ignited that we have is that it gives you a normal biblical commentary of each chapter. I love it. And then it addresses male and female inside of the chapter so which you can read with your spouse. So please note those out there. Again, most people feel uneasy about getting these books, but here's a great opportunity to pick them up and just say, Pastor Ron told me to get it. And for those online, which we are great that a lot of people are online, I put the links to these books in the description so you too can be blessed. Well, let's 
dive into this a little bit and let's kind of figure out and unpack this song because a lot of it, uh, a lot of it has been confusing uh, for so many for so long. So let's talk about some helpful things to know about the song or as I like to put it, this play that is acted out on these pages. So if you're taking note, there are two main characters There's one minor role, but there are two main characters. The main characters are King Solomon. So I'm not sure I'm going to call him King Solomon the whole time, but we'll call him Solomon. Or he's called the Beloved as well. And then we have the Shulamite. It's interesting because in the Hebrew, her her, um, name is the female noun for Solomon, so it can be translated better Mrs. Solomon. So we have Mr. and Mrs. Solomon for uh, this play. And then there's uh, an imaginary chorus of virgins called the Daughters of Jerusalem, and they act as a third character, a minor role in this drama. They give some breaks uh, to the the play. Okay. Okay. So what is the song about? The first part of the song addresses the passions and the insecurities faced by most newlyweds. We will witness the king and his lovely virgin bride as they run to the bedroom to consummate their marriage. Heat rises, as we will see from the pages, as as we view this uh, exchange between the two of them. Uh, steamy, yes, but appropriate, an exchange of endearments and caresses, and then towards the middle of the song, I know this is going to be shopping, uh, shopping, (laughs) shocking, problems arise. Selfishness rears its ugly head in the middle. As she, the Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon, dreams about a recurring nightmare or problem in their sexual relationship. In the dream, Solomon comes to her late at night wanting, uh, uh, wanting sex, but she rejects him because she wants to sleep. And then she feels bad and runs after him, and when she goes to open up the door, he's gone. A problem that happens all too often, and if she or he is not careful the desire will lose its focus. Again, we will address this further when we get to that section. Eventually, they work through their problems and learn to become, again, servant lovers to one another. The book ends with the most powerful statement in the Bible about marital love. One lifted up as a light of eternal hope for every couple. True love is stronger than death, It is eternal and it's everlasting. It is the very flame of the Lord, Song of Solomon 8, 6. Now, what about some prevailing views of the Song of Solomon or the Song of Psalms or their interpretations? There are two common views, and we're going to do these, and then we're going to come back to this topic of interpretation in a little bit later. There are two primary views of the Song of Songs. Number one, it's allegorical. Jews down through the ages see the Song of Solomon as a magnificent metaphor for the relationship between God 
and the Jewish people. They believed that Solomon represented God and the wife represented Israel. Christians also hold this view and they believe that the song is an allegory of Christ being Solomon and the church the bride. Now, I just need to say this as a footnote. That's not entirely totally wrong. There is a lot of meaning here between God and mankind and what he does. But you need to note, nowhere in here uh, do we see anything about theology or salvation. It is simply a love letter. It's a poem. It's a drama. And so number two, then, we should take it literally, just like we looked at Revelation. Again, this view says that the song is actually a love story between a husband and his wife, and that the story teaches God's view of love, of marriage, and of sex. In our desire to understand any book of the Bible, we must ask ourselves, what is the most obvious message the author is trying to communicate? While it is possible that, again, the song tells of a story of spiritual love between God and his people, and I think that there is something to that. Again, here at Calvary Chapel, Myrtle Beach, when all else fails, embrace the literal view of the Bible. You'll do well when you do that. And that goes for the Song of Solomon. So, why has it been so difficult then to understand this book for 1,900 years? People often scratch their head in bewilderment after the initial reading of the Song of Solomon, and they say, what's going on? The reaction has to do in part with the manner in which the song is written. For instance, we as Americans, America, uh, and remember, we speak American. We don't speak English. I learned that in England. Uh, we are Greek thinkers. We don't think in the Hebrew way of thinking. And we certainly don't know what, how to read Hebrew poetry. Again, Solomon wrote this book as poetry. Hebrew poetry is dialectic and rhythmic. It is... It's, I'm sorry, it stresses and unstresses certain syllables and sounds. It just doesn't make sense to, to the Western mind. Uh, also, the scenes in this drama are not in chronological order. That is very Hebrew. So, again, uh, as Western thinkers, we would think of it as going from, right, the... Um, uh, the courtship, right, coming together, uh, the betrothal period, then the marriage, and then the marriage bed, and then all of these things. That's not how it starts. It starts, did you see that? Right away steamy. And then it's going to flash back and forth between these different scenes. Again, it's much like a movie or a play that goes back and forth, and we need to remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the great things about this book, the book of Song of Psalms, is that the sexual references explained um, are, are done in a way with imagery and symbolism. Again, God inspired Solomon to use uh, poetic imagery to portray explicit sexual acts. For example... When the husband enters his wife's garden, the image refers to 
Well, let's just leave it until we get to that section. Mandrakes and pomegranates, which spill forth their seed when open, symbolizes fertility and virility, as well as honey and wine convey, uh, convey intense erotic desires. And because all of the sexual references, listen, are cloaked in symbolism, this is what I love about our God. That a child could pick up the Bible, read these verses, and find no offense. Isn't that interesting what God did? But a husband and wife could understand the terminology and find specific sexual instruction and encouragement about being a servant lover. Again, the promise of the Song of Solomon is to married couples, and it is that their love, uh, although as we will see have problems, uh, they too uh, fall under what God has called them to do. Again, this book is dedicated to helping you and to your spouse do just that. There is also, if you're taking note, another set of verses, and I love this about the Song of Solomon. It is to tell young people and older not to awaken desire before its time, and this is given throughout the book. So there are a few young people in this room that are not married. And I, uh, you need to hear this verse. It is uh, several times, but it's in chapter 2, verse 7. Let me read to you. It says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. Doesn't that just sound cool? And here it is. Do not stir up nor awaken love or passion until it pleases. That's the verse. The verse is, do not Kindle the fire before it is in its proper containment, that of the marriage hearth. Again, it's a song among the songs. Again, God ordained Solomon to write this timeless little instruction book on the marital relation. <laughs> Listen, the task before him must have seemed impossible. Can you imagine the phone call that Solomon got? Hello, it's the Lord. Yes, Lord, what would you have me do? Well, I'd like you to write a real-life drama that captures the passion, adventure, and mystery of marriage, but do not ignore the problems of, of daily life. Further, I want you to be frank and precise when speaking of sexual intimacy, but write in such a way that if a child reads the words, their innocent will remain intact. But regarding sexual activity, be specific enough to be helpful, but sensitive enough to be not offending. Be spiritual yet practical, wholesome yet serious, and do all this in 120 verses or less. Have a good day. <laughs> what? You want me to do what? Think about this for a second, husband and wife. Would you be willing to write down your intimate fair for the entire world to hear for 3,000 years? That's exactly what he did. Again, Solomon did that. 
The result is a book on marital relations that is specific yet poetic, frank yet innocent, simple yet profound. Now, let's, I, I told you, let's get back to some different interpretations and approaches on how this has been used or misused in understanding the Song of Solomon. A lot of people wanted to avoid this book altogether. A guy, uh, Oregon, and not the state, uh, he lived in 185 A.D. to 254. He was an important teacher in the early church, and he said this of the Song of Solomon. He said, I advise and counsel everyone who has not yet rid their vexations of flesh and blood. <laughs> we don't talk like that anymore. And has not ceased to feel the passions of this bodily nature to refrain from reading the book and the things that are said in it. Apparently, Oregon uh, was prepared to study the Song of Solomon. Why? Because he castrated himself early on in his life. This was very common in the early day of the church. Others embrace the book again with great devotion, but see it again primarily as an allegory Describing the love relationship between God and his people, not between a husband and a wife. And again, I say this over and over. There is something to that. The early, uh, the early Jewish rabbis taught that the book pictures God's love for Israel. And again, the early Christians wrote about the same approach. But they replaced Israel with their church. One writer in the 3rd century wrote a 10-volume commentary on the Song of Solomon telling how the book describes God's love for Christians. One author of the day said, The chief speakers are not Solomon and the Shulamite, but Christ and his church. And that could be. But the best way to see this book is, as I said in the beginning, literal. It is a powerful description of, of the romantic and sensual love between a man and a woman, observing both their courtship, their marriage, and the imagery that goes along with that. Again, imagine if the world could read this book and see God's real heart for marriage and sex. But because the church did not stand up for the gift of marital sex, listen, the devil inserted his twisted view of sex into the world and convinced the church to stay away from the topic. We're going to be spiritual. Oh, what would our world would have been like if the church would have promoted and stood up and punched the devil in the mouth? But we have what we have inside of the church because, sadly, of the devil. Again, yet because God deliberately uses the marriage relationship as an illustration of the relationship that he has within his people, we find that this great song of song illustrates the love and the intensity and the beautiful relationship that should exist between God and the believer. Again, going back to early thoughts. But, as one writer said, this is clearly secondary into in the subject of the plain literal meaning of that between a husband and a wife. G. Campbell Morgan said, 
There are those who treat this book as a song of the human heart. There are those who consider its only value that of the mystical union between God and man. But personally, I believe that the first has some value, but mostly it is between a husband and a wife. Again, the fact that this is the greatest song of all and that it focuses on marital love shows us the high regard that God has for the institution of marriage and the marriage relationship within that marriage bed. Again, we might expect that the Song of Songs might be a song that only praises God, but instead it is one that celebrates that which God gave to Adam and Eve. Go and be, what? Fruitful and multiply. Again, the Bible does not see marriage as an inferior state, a concession to human weakness. Nor does it see the normal physical love within that relationship as impure. Marriage was instituted before the fall. And God was concerned that the first couple, again, would become one flesh. Therefore, physical love within I love how these guys talk in the old days. The conjugal union is good, and it is God's will, and we should delight in both of that. Additionally, the prospect of children is not necessarily to justify the sexual love between our inside of marriage. Significantly, the Song of Songs makes no references to procreation just the coming together under God's watchful eye. How you doing? I'm almost done. I want to talk about this as we, and we're literally going to end in five minutes. But there are seasons of life. I love Kay Smith, and she would always tell people there are seasons of life. There are seasons where you're going to have great amount of time to do a devotion, and there are seasons where you're not going to. As a mom, you're not going to be able to have that time because you've got kids running around, and then you're taking them to soccer and all of these things, and there are times where in the seasons of life, you don't have what even (laughs) you would think as quote-unquote normal. There are times of medical issues. In life, those are seasons. There will be times where there will be little or no even desire, and that sometimes a spouse may decide that they no longer want, need, or desire that relation. And to be frank with you, there is not much you can do about that. You can pray for them, of course, and you leave it in the hands of God, but I stress to husbands. Be mindful and be careful, but most of all, be loving, as we will see through the Song of Solomon. Be a servant lover. Let me end with some New Testament, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other esteem themselves better than themselves. And let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Read ahead. 
chapter 1 for next week. And I, I know this is very exciting. Sunday, we start in Hosea that talks about Hosea marrying a prostitute. So <laughs> we've got it all figured out, apparently. Read chapter 1 of Hosea and Song of Solomon 1 for next week. Let's 